Familiar words in some ways from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which tell of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And at Calvin's suggestion today, I'm going to be reading this from the J.B. Phillips translation. We're reading from chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 17. But in giving you the following rules, I cannot commend your conduct, for it seems that your church meetings do you more harm than good. For first, when you meet for worship, I hear that you split up into small groups, and I think there must be some truth in what I hear. For there must be cliques among you, or your favorite leaders would not be so conspicuous. It follows, then, that when you are assembled in one place, you do not eat the Lord's Supper. For everyone tries to grab his food before anyone else, with the result that one goes hungry and another has too much to drink. Haven't you houses of your own to have your meals in? Or are you making a convenience of the church of God and causing acute embarrassment to those who have no other home? <clears throat> Am I to commend this sort of conduct? Most certainly not. The teaching I gave you was given me personally by the Lord himself, and it is this. The Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is being broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Similarly, when supper was ended, he took the cup, saying, <clears throat> This cup is the new agreement in my blood. <clears throat> Do this, excuse me, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This can only mean that whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you are proclaiming that the Lord has died for you, and you will do it that until he comes again. <clears throat> so that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord without proper reverence is sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. No, a man should thoroughly examine himself, <clears throat> and only then should he eat the bread and drink of the cup. He that eats and drinks carelessly is eating and drinking a judgment on himself, for he is blind to the presence of the Lord's body. May God bless this portion of his word. I want to read to you from the Gospel according to John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. These verses tell us that our Lord Jesus, on the morning in which he was, on the day in which he was crucified, from about nine o'clock in the morning when he was nailed to a cross, until he died six hours later, there had passed into his presence, or he had been brought into the presence of four men. They all came from very different paths in life, just as we come from different paths in life. And they responded in very different ways to Jesus. 
and from them we may learn a lesson. Let me read first from John chapter 18. And then they therefore led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium. That was a Roman palace, and it would have defiled them to have entered the court of a Gentile. Into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said unto him, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he had spoken, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Pilate therefore entered into the praetorium, and he summons Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went away again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release someone at the Passover. Do you wish that I should release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The first of the four men that Jesus met on that day in which he was crucified was this Roman governor. It was the first of any of the high politicians or military officials that Jesus had ever encountered. John the Baptist had met Herod and had been beheaded by him. But Jesus, in the far-off provincial rural life of Galilee, had not come into contact with any of the authorities. And so Pilate, Pilate has Jesus brought before him. And he must make a judgment about Jesus. Jesus, in one of his great sermons, had said, when he was exalting the greatness of John the Baptist, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? 
No, said Jesus. You went out to see a prophet, and in John the Baptist you saw more than a prophet. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Someone who wears soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment live in king's houses. Well, Pilate wore soft raiment. Not only on the outside, but the marble, the moral fiber of his nature had been softened. It had been softened by compromise after compromise after compromise. He looked at Jesus and in consternation said to him, when Jesus at one point would not speak to him, Don't you know that I have the power to set you free? Officially, Pilate did have that power. But in reality, he did not have that power. He had compromised it away a long time ago. Pilate was a politician, and I have spent a good bit of my life being around politicians. And the name of the game is compromise in many instances. And here, Pilate has to think about his own position. He has to think about the fact that it won't be too long until he can retire and go to Rome and live in a villa near the coast, maybe at Ostia. But if these Jews should somehow anger the emperor, who was already put out with Pilate anyway, it could mean the loss of his pension and the loss of his retirement plans. And so he is one of those people who, when professional advancement is concerned, make short work of moral consideration. There is an old Latin proverb. You remember those balances on which you weigh things? That says, if self, the wavering balance shake, tis rarely right adjusted. There's a great deal of truth in that. Pilate was not a person who was really all that bad. He knew enough to know that for envy they had delivered Jesus to him. And he really wanted to do what was right. He wanted to set him free. He had already said, I find no guilt in this man. But when they began to scream out at him, if you set this man free, you are no friend of Caesar. And friend of Caesar, filio Caesar, was an official Roman title, like counselor to the president. And when they said that, Pilate knew that it was all over. Jesus could go to the cross as far as he was concerned. And so what does his lesson teach us? Have you ever compromised your loyalty to Jesus Christ to avoid the loss of some personal advancement or gain that might have come to you? If you have, then this morning you ought to confess it before him. You ought to confess it and seek from him his forgiveness and know that he will forgive you 
and make you what you ought to be. It may startle you to know that last night when I went to bed and reading about Pope John Paul and about how he had stood in the presence of the military general dictator of Poland and it actually pronounced the word solidarity. The Western newsmen present noticed that the military dictator's knees trembled. And I thought of Paul when he had stood before Felix. And Felix trembled. And so I tore the cover off Time magazine and pasted the picture of the Pope up by my bed and looked at him before I went to sleep because I thought here is a great man. Here is a man with courage. Here is a man with tremendous courage. And when I think of his courage, I wondered why one of my favorite people, Malcolm Muggridge, I have a letter here that he mails out to people on his mailing list. Malcolm Muggridge was converted recently and joined the Roman Catholic Church. And he wrote a letter to many people who admire him. The last time I saw him was in Lausanne in Switzerland. The first time I saw him was in Washington, D.C., in a little restaurant about a block down from the White House. Ruth Graham said to Dorothy and to me, we were there for the swearing-in of the Postmaster General, and she said, uh, do you know Malcolm Muggridge? And I said, no, but I've read many of his things, and I admire him. She said, would you like to meet him? There he is. And she pointed him out and went over, and we sat down. He was a very gracious man. He was beginning a pilgrimage toward Christ. He writes to some of his friends and says it might seem rather absurd to someone, that someone like myself, well into his 80th year, should be seeking admission to the Roman Catholic Church. Like taking out a life insurance policy when one's life is almost at an end. Yet since membership of a church has to do with eternity rather than time, years are scarcely to be considered. And then he tells us why. It was humane vitae, the life of man, more than anything else that made me feel I must belong to that church that had, could have the extraordinary insight and courage to produce this encyclical. Knowing that it would absolutely be torn to pieces and treated as a kind of blasphemy, in the idiotic society in which we live. And then he goes on to speak about a meeting with Fulton Sheen. When Fulton Sheen was dying, I had a wonderful talk with Archbishop Sheen. I didn't know him, but I was in New York and he called for me and he was dying. And you know, when people are dying, they often have very considerable things to say. And I have cherished and meditated upon this. Bishop Sheen said, never worry. Christendom is over, but not Christ. I attribute the end of Christendom largely to liberalism. It's the great destructive force of our time. 
liberalism makes sense, you can only account for it when you see it as a kind of death wish. It masquerades as being progressive and enlightened and loving and all the rest. To give a simple example, the abortion holocaust, as contrasted with Hitler and the Nazis' holocaust, everyone beats their breast over what Hitler did. But no connection is made with the former holocaust, done for the highest intentions, performed in the most antiseptic manner, by the most respected surgeons, and no one sees the connection, or at least pretends to. There you have it, a humane holocaust under liberalism's bright shining banner. I am glad that the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church says that councils have erred and do err. Because when any assembly says that the murder of an infant. We read a while ago that Jesus told Pilate, for this reason I was born into the world. And I'm sure that for socioeconomic reasons, that the carpenter of Nazareth and the blessed mother of our Lord might have been given an abortion advice by some clergy of our enlightened day. And so we compromise. A touch more abortion, a little more pornography, a great deal more freedom, and then we use it only as a matter in which to satisfy and gratify our lust. Someone said to me the other day, but don't you know that every child ought to be wanted? Certainly every child ought to be wanted. But if you follow that logic to its conclusion, why don't you just go ahead with the other trimester and let them be born and see whether you want them or not? Then kill them. That makes more logic. And so we need not compromise either as individuals or a church. We need to side on the sense of duty and the side of life, and the side that God and the Bible demands. Well, Jesus was bandied from Pilate's court to Herod's court. Herod was the second when he met, and when Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he remembered that that was Herod's jurisdiction, and so he sent Jesus over to be judged by Herod. And the scriptures tell us plainly, and I'll paraphrase it for you to be quick, that Herod was glad when he heard that Jesus was coming. He thought maybe Jesus was the ghost of John the Baptist reincarnated. He had heard that Jesus performed miracles and that he thought that perhaps Jesus would do some miracle in his presence. And so he would do a little religious performance for him. Court life can become very dull even for the rich and the famous. And so it had become for Herod. And this man whose conscience was jaded, who had had the in, whose father had had the infants of Jerusalem all murdered, 
in infant side in an effort to destroy the baby Jesus. This man sends for Jesus. And he wants to see him perform a miracle. But Jesus will not satisfy your curiosity in that way. No, he will not reveal himself to you unless you are willing to make a commitment to him. He reveals himself to faith, not to curiosity. And so he would not reveal himself to Herod. Herod's religion was simply a matter of passing the time of day. What about yours? Are you waiting to see Jesus do some miracle? Just to satisfy curiosity? Or are you willing in faith to believe that he can do all his holy will? Then by God's grace, he may show you the greatest miracle of all, which is the new birth and a new life in him. And so Herod passed away from the presence of Jesus and the third person who met Jesus never intended it to be that way. He was a respectable citizen. He was a native of Cyrene, which is North Africa, which could have meant that he was a black man who was converted to Judaism or a Jew who had gone all the way to Cyrene to practice his trade and who had come back for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I rather think he was a black man because a Roman soldier, knowing that the Jews were already angry and stirred up anyway and not wishing to start a riot, would not have taken his spear and punched the Jew with it and said, you pick up his cross. When Jesus stumbled beneath the weight of that cross, but he saw this black man who was from out of town with his garb of an African, and he thought that would be a safe one to abuse. And so he punched him with his spear and told him to pick up the cross of Jesus. And we can read it in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. And they kept beating his head with a reed, spitting upon him, kneeling down and bowing before him, and after they had mocked him, they took a purple robe and put, his garments on, put these garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they commandeered into service a passerby. You see, he never intended to do this. He was just a passerby. Coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. But notice this important parenthesis the father of Alexander and Rufus, that he might bear his cross. The father of Alexander and Rufus. 
That means that this Simon must have become a believer. And he was known to Mark and to those in the early church. And his sons, Alexander and Rufus, were believers also. And what lesson does that teach me? That quite unexpectedly, I may be called upon to bear some unpleasant task which I do not want to bear. And I am made to bear it. But through bearing it for the Lord Jesus, he can reveal himself to me in such a way that I become his disciple forever. That's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing to happen. In coming back from the Mayo Clinic, the other day from Rochester, we sat down, my wife and I, on the airplane next to a lady with a bandage over her face. She was crying. Very nervous. And I reached over and put my hand on hers. People sometimes are frightened when an airplane starts to take off. She had arrived at the Mayo Clinic for a cancer operation which was to be a part of her treatment for repeated operations that she had had in other places. And now she had been sent there. She had arrived the day before, had spent the night in the hospital, and then a social worker from the clinic had come to her and waked her up to tell her that the police in her town had called and that her brother had just died. Would it be possible for her to return and to make arrangements for the funeral? A year before, her husband had died. We talked about the Lord. We wrote out some scriptures and handed them to her. And when she left the airplane, she thanked us for it. Sometimes there are hard things that come upon us in life, suddenly and unexpectedly and unwelcome. But if we bear them for Jesus, he can turn them into something that will make us a better disciple than we would ever have been. The last person that I want to speak of in preparing our hearts for communion is a man who died on the cross by Jesus. He was crucified between two thieves. The Bible in the King James, in its quaint way of putting it, says he was crucified in the midst of two thieves. Why the Roman authorities elected to crucify him that way, I don't know. But what it says to me was that they had an equal opportunity. There was one on either side of him. Simon of Cyrene, who had picked up that heavy cross and had felt that sticky, hot blood of Jesus and had borne it up to Skull Hill and had stood there and watched them and heard the people say he claimed to be the Son of God, he claimed to save others, let him save himself. He heard enough to lead him to believe and this thief, this robber on that cross, he hears something that touches his heart too. It touches it 
Because when Jesus is nailed to the cross, one of the criminals who was hanged there hurled abuse at him and said, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, maybe he could remember as a little boy going to the synagogue, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. <clears throat> it's hard sometimes to know whether a person is really saved and gone to heaven. But here is one of whom you may be absolutely sure. Some lady once said, what good did that thief do? She wrote a letter to a pastor whom I greatly admire, and she said, what good did the salvation of that thief do? All he did was take his life out like a cigarette and then blow the smoke in God's face and then walk into heaven. And my pastor friend wrote back and said that thief on the cross has probably been responsible for the salvation of more souls than any self-righteous person like yourself. What does it tell us? It tells us that it's never too late. One thief did not repent so that we would not presume that we can wait. And one thief did repent so that we might know that it's never too late. And we also learn a lesson about suffering. I've sometimes wondered what good it is when you go to a place like the Mayo Clinic and you see those people from all over the world, 1,200 doctors in that one clinic alone. People with all different languages, all different types of clothing, sitting by you in the restaurant with all sorts and kinds of trouble. And you wonder about the mystery of suffering. Jesus was suffering. He was suffering on a cross. He hung there for hours. And his throat was burning with thirst. And there was a bucket there with cheap ration wine of the common Roman soldiers that they had a sponge that they sponged the blood off their hands with. And when Jesus cried out, I thirst, one of the soldiers took a reed and stuck it in the sponge and lifted it up to his lips on the cross. But what does this Jesus speak? Jesus, even in his suffering, serves God. I saw a saint of God who's loved Jesus for years the other day. She has Alzheimer's 
disease. Little flickers of the old self come and go. But what a saint of God. And she still serves him in the bewildered suffering that she has to go through. And it means that they also serve not only who stand and wait, but who only lie and suffer. That one day the mystery of suffering will be revealed to us in a way that we can't understand now. God can say tremendous things to a suffering person or to a truly repentant soul. If you've done some terrible thing, and you want the forgiveness of God. Oh, he can say wonderful things to you right now. He can toss you a passport to heaven. He can change your whole life. Because you're open and receptive. And you can receive it now. And so we come. And I tell you the sweet old story of old John Duncan who taught at New College in Edinburgh in 1846 who preaching in the highlands of Scotland at a communion service and the Scots fence the tables and they take it very seriously and those words of warning of St. Paul are always read And a lovely Scottish maid, 16 years old, when the Holy Supper came to her, shook her head with the tears streaming down her face, turning away, telling the elder that she could not take the Lord's Supper. And then the long, bony arm of John Duncan came over her shoulder and touched it. Pack it, lassie, said he. It's for sinners. Oh, ye tears, oh, ye tears, I am thankful that ye run. Though ye trickle in the darkness, ye shall glitter in the sun. The rainbow cannot shine if the rain refuse to fall, and the eyes that cannot weep are the saddest eyes of all. Oh, ye tears, oh, ye tears, ye relieve me of my pain. The barren rock of pride has been stricken once again. Like the rock that Moses smote amid Mount Horeb's burning sand, it yields the flowing water to make gladness in the land. There is light upon my path. There is sunshine in my heart. And the leaf and fruit of life shall not utterly depart. Ye restore to me the freshness and the bloom of long ago. O oh, ye tears, O oh, ye tears, I am thankful that ye flow. <laughs>